But I want to start by asking you a question, which is, what, what is your strategy for getting your own way? Okay, we all, we all have one. So when you want to get your own way in a specific situation, how do you go about doing that? What's your strategy for doing it? We have, we have many different strategies in our households. Um, I, I'm married uh, to Sarah, and I've got four children. And so w- that means that there's six different people all employing different strategies at different times in an attempt to get their own way. Uh, so one of, one of the most common uh, strategies for getting, their own, uh, getting your own way in our house is just screaming. Um, uh, so there's a lot of screaming to get their own way. Like, uh, you know, why does everyone hate me? You know, that, that kind of screaming. Or, or why do you never let me do what I want to do? And I say, Sarah, just calm down. Um, <laughs> Not really. Um, uh, no, no. So, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of that, that sort of stuff. There's a, there's a lot of screaming in an attempt to get, get, some, get us to give people what I, whatever our kids want. There's, there's also a reasonable amount of violence. Um, uh, for, again, may, mainly from the children, who are three of them in this room, so I apologise um, for outing you in public. Um, but there's a reasonable amount of violence, i.e. they wouldn't let me watch what I wanted to watch so I punched them. Like, you know, that, that kind of approach to getting our own way. Um, uh, my favourite, I'm not a big fan of the screaming and the violence, but my favourite way that people try and get their own way, um, which I love just watching, is bargaining. Do you, do you have a lot of that in your house? Kids bargaining is like the greatest thing. So it starts off like someone's got some delicious pudding over here, uh, and you want that delicious pudding, and so you go, I'll give you 10 pence for that pudding. And the person goes, no, no, I'm not making t- no, definitely not taking 10 pence. Okay, what about, what about 20 pence? No, no, not 20 pence. Okay, what about if I give you like one of my toys for the pudding? Will we take that? No, I won't take that. Okay, what about 20 pence and a toy? No, still won't take that. Okay, what if I, if I give you all my puddings for a week for that pudding right there? No, okay, I'll give you all my puddings for the rest of my life if I can just have that pudding in front of me now. Like, like, it's mad. It makes no sense. Like, you are, you are bargaining away all this stuff for something of basically no value. I, I love watching it because the, the, the amount that people are willing to bargain for something of almost no value is kind of laughable. And it gives you a little insight into why people do it. People don't do it because they want the thing. They do it because they like controlling other people. Like, they're not bothered about the pudding. They just want to see, can I get this person to give me their pudding? I want to I demonstrate that I have the power and the ability to, to get that thing from that person. You see, it's not about getting the thing. It's about a feeling of power. You see, the appeal of getting our own way is not simply about that, because there's no deep joy or satisfaction to be found in controlling or dominating another person. But... There is a perverse short-term pleasure that comes from that. That's why so many people do it so much of the time. The game with bargaining is not to get a good deal, but simply to see if you can get someone else to do what you want them to do. Uh, Anyway, there's a few. What's yours? What do you do? What do you do to get your own way? You probably don't do a whole load of those three. I'll tell you what I do. I'm a sulker. Uh, There's probably some other sulkers in the room. I'm a sulker. If I'm not getting my own way, I sulk in the hope that over time I become such poor company that people will just give in and just be like, oh, fine, you can go out then. Like, that's that's my approach. So Sarah's maybe not in, so I'm I'm safe. Uh, She doesn't know my strategy yet, so I might still be able to use it for a while. But that that is is my strategy. I'm a sulker. I, I know I am. That's my default. If I'm not getting my own way, I'll sulk 
in the hope that people just capitulate and, and let me have what I want. That's me. What about you? What do you do? Now, you don't actually have to tell me. Um, and before those of you who are here knew this week, like, this is a weird kind of church. Um, I, I'm not ready to be outed on my control mechanisms. Um, but, but yeah, just think about it for yourself. Like, well, what do you do? What do you do to get your own way? How do you go about doing that? How do you go about trying to influence and control other people? You see, that's where we're going to start this week. And the reason we're going to start there this week is because in chapter 2 of Daniel, we finally get introduced to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is an impressive figure. He is the most powerful person probably in the ancient world. He rules over an empire. He's staggeringly wealthy. He wins wars. It's even perfectly possible that he made one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You know, he's an impressive figure. He's acquired wealth. He's done so much. And so as we get into chapter 2... We should be intrigued to see, well, what, what is this great Nebuchadnezzar like? How does he build this incredible empire? How, how does he, how is he so successful and so powerful and so wealthy? And over the next few weeks in Daniel, we're going to get loads of insights into what makes Nebuchadnezzar tick, how he thinks about things, how he works. But this week, I want us to focus in on that question, which is, how does he govern? Like, how does he control the people that he rules over? What's the basis of his rule? How does he seek to motivate people and control them? So I want to go back to that question I just asked you. How do you seek to get your own way? Well, how does Nebuchadnezzar do it? When there's all these people under his control, what, what, what's his strategy? What does he do? We're going to see it presented for us right at the start of this chapter. If you've still got Daniel 2 open in front of you, that will be helpful. I'd, um, just let me read to you um, verses 5 and 6 again. Scott read it earlier. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it. That, right there, is Nebuchadnezzar's method of governing. That's how he rules over his kingdom. That's how he gets his own way. That's how he motivates and controls people. And what is it? It's that straightforward combination of threats and promises. You know, it's, it's the carrot and the stick. Uh, I mean, when the, the carrot is wealth beyond your imaginations and the stick is being ch chopped into pieces and like your house has turned into rubble. Maybe that's not, like, it's, it's, it's like carrots and sticks, but like turned up to 11. You know, it's like, that's, that's where we're at. It is carrots and sticks, but it's like the extreme end of it. That, that's his method. If you don't do this, I will kill you. If you do do this, you will receive gifts and rewards and great honor. Now, now, the reason I wanted to start with that and just point that out is because that combination of threats and promised rewards continues to be the main way that people try to control other people in our society. It continues to be out there as the number one method that people try to control other people. It, it's a play in the workplace. If you do this thing, I will make it worth your while. But if you don't, I will make your life miserable. The same thing. The promise of rewards. The threat of 
punishment if you don't. It's a play in the workplace. It's a play in marriages. If you do what I want, I'll sleep with you. If you don't, I'll be violent towards you. Present in many marriages in our culture. It's a play in friendships. If you do what I want, then I'll be generous towards you. If not, then I'll sulk. It's actually a play just more generally in culture. If you pursue this lifestyle, all your dreams will come true. But without it, you'll end up sad and miserable and alone. Combination of promised rewards and threats. And of course, the thing that Nebuchadnezzar asks for is completely unreasonable. It's not like a a reasonable demand to make of people. He he asked people, not only do I want you to tell me what my dream means, you've got to tell me what the dream itself was. It's so unreasonable that his advisors say to him, It's impossible. No man could do this. And not only is it impossible, everyone knows it's impossible. No king, however great, has ever asked such a thing. It's impossible. No one on earth can do it. No one on earth has ever previously demanded it. So you have this combination of an impossible demand with accompanied by threats if you don't do it and promises if you do do it. Of course, you can't do it because it's impossible. I just want to point out that often the demands that we see placed on us or on other people in our culture are equally impossible. In marriages, the demands just keep escalating. And no matter what you do, it's never enough. So you're always in the bad books. You're always made to feel like you're being a failure. You're always being treated badly. Similarly, at a cultural level, in our culture... We are told if we can just exercise enough and sleep enough and spend enough time with others and spend enough time alone and work a fulfilling and demanding job and build the perfect family, then we'll be happy. But if not, we'll have wasted our lives. It's just an impossible ask. There's just not enough hours in the day and we don't have the ability to do all of those things perfectly. So we always feel like a failure. Dissatisfied, overwhelmed. It's the same combination. It's an unreasonable demand coupled with, but if you don't do it, it'll go really badly for you. And if you do do it, it's going to be so great. But you can't do it because it's impossible. Now, now I'm gonna, I want to move on because uh, just from that point in a minute. But before I do, I just want to make it absolutely clear the relationship that Nebuchadnezzar has with, pe- with these people here is clearly abusive. But as a dictator who's just kidnapped a whole load of people... That shouldn't really surprise us. However, the scenarios I have described are also abusive. And if you find yourself in relationships like that, I want to encourage you, you need to talk to somebody, you need to get some help. The stats on domestic abuse are terrifying. The world is full of people who will look to control and exploit you through exactly the same mix of promises and threats. And and we want you to be free of those kind of relationships. So if you are someone sat here today who when you hear that thinks, yeah, that is my marriage. That is my workplace. That is my friendship circle. I just really want to encourage you. Talk to someone. Talk to me if you want to. Talk to one of the other church leaders. Talk to someone here who came with you. Uh, Talk to one of the many groups who are out there to help you with that. We want you to flee those kind of relationships. A relationship built 
on the threat of punishment and, and the uh, promise of reward, that's not the kind of relationships we want to live in. But what, what I really want to focus on is the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and God. Because it strikes me that as I describe that relationship, as I describe this relationship where Nebuchadnezzar seeks to control people through, the, through threats and promises and rewards, that's how lots of people think about God. Lots of people think God works basically like that. If you, if you do the right things, then he'll give you rewards. But if you step out of line, man, you better watch out. Many people seem to think that God is a God who works the same way as Nebuchadnezzar does, trying to control our lives so that he can get what he wants out of us, seeking his own good at our expense, trying to control us through rewards and punishments. But what we're going to see in Daniel is that Daniel is actually a tale of two kings. It's one of the central ideas that's going to run through this book of Daniel. There are two, there are two kings here, Nebuchadnezzar on the one hand and the God of the universe on the other. But God is nothing like Nebuchadnezzar. Where Nebuchadnezzar makes unreasonable demands, God is unreasonably generous. Look, look at verses 18 to 23 with me, uh, if you've just got that open. Uh, you, you see there that when Daniel is facing the threats of Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do? Verse 18. He meets with his friends and he pr- pleads for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Now, that's what he does. He asks that God will intervene to save him. Save him from Nebuchadnezzar's executioners. And what does God do? God gives him what he asks for. There is no bargaining with God. God, God doesn't come up with a trade for Daniel. Oh, Daniel, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll get you out of this mess, but you just need to make sure that you do X, Y, and Z for me. None of that. God just, just answers him and he gives it. D- Daniel asks, God gives. It, equally, God doesn't threaten Daniel a sort of, well, if, if I do this for you, then you'll owe me, or, well, remember how you kind of got that wrong and that wrong and that wrong so really I probably shouldn't give you this thing it it doesn't work like that that's not how God works Daniel asks God gives that's how God works that's how God always works God is the God who said it's more blessed to give than to receive that's his DNA that's how he's wired that's what he believes about the world he's not looking to withhold and waiting for you to convince him to give he believes that blessing is found in giving he wants to give he's not trying not to God is the God who said, ask, and it will be given to you. He's the God who says, talk to me as if I am a loving, heavenly dad. That's how I want you to relate to me. I I don't know, I can't answer this for you, but so many people fall into the trap of viewing God like Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe that's how you are viewing God. Maybe that's how you view God your whole life quick to reward us if we do what he wants, quick to punish us if we don't. We spend our life terrified of stepping out of line in case we miss out on the rewards or face the punishments. But that's not how God works. God is not Nebuchadnezzar. 
We're told here God is a God of mercy. That's what Daniel pleads to God for, for mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is when we deserve punishment. He offers forgiveness. It's the exact opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. He's a God of grace. Grace is, well, when we've turned our back on God, he still offers us his goodness. You couldn't get two more different kings than Nebuchadnezzar and God. One makes unreasonable demands accompanied by threats and rewards. The other makes no demands and simply wants us to come to him and ask. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. Disobeying God does have consequences and can lead to real pain and sorrow. I don't want to pretend that's not true. You will have all experienced something of that. And similarly, there are joys to be found in obeying God, which we will never experience without that. But, like Scott was reminding us at the start of today, the forgiveness we need to know God, the transformed hearts which enable us both to want to obey God and begin to obey Him, are never earned. They are only ever asked for. They are free gifts from a good God who gives us what we need without charge, and without conditions. Like Daniel, we just ask. You see, the first half of this chapter, kind of 2 down to 23, is this story of two very different kings. And you're going to see that again and again in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of the day, compared to God, the king of the universe. And what you're going to see is just how much better God is than any human king. But the second half of the chapter, let's, let's move on. The second half of the chapter, what we get is a tale of two kingdoms. So if the first half is a tale of two kings, the second half is a tale of two kingdoms. Now, now those of you who were listening carefully might go, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure there were five kingdoms there. Uh, and, and yeah, there kind of are five, but really it's two. It, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there is this statue made of precious and strong metals. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that these represent four kingdoms. The Babylonians is their head of gold. And after that comes three more. And those three more are normally and have for centuries been identified as the empires of the Medes and the Persians that came after the Babylon, Babylonian Empire, the, the Greek Empire under Alexander, and then the Roman Empire. These are the four empires that are being talked about here. So there's four em empires, but I just want to be clear, there is only one statue because... All empires are, in some levels, basically the same. They are human empires led by humans. But alongside those human empires, there's this other empire that's growing in the background. This rock, tiny rock that's been cut out of a mountain. And while the statues are there, and these empires come and they go, in the background, in the shadows, there's this rock. And it's growing. It's been cut out of the mountain and then it's starting to come down. It's growing in momentum and momentum and momentum until it crashes into the statue. It crashes into those kingdoms and we're told it smashes them to pieces. Uh, and having done that, it then grows into this mountain that covers the whole earth. It establishes a new kingdom which we're told is the kingdom of God. So, the kingdom of God 
is, again, as different to human kingdoms as God is to Nebuchadnezzar. I just want to draw your attention to a few things that make the kingdom of God so different. First, we're told in verse 35, if you can see it there, that this kingdom is universal in scope. It covers the entire earth. This is not a kingdom just for the Middle East, like the Babylonian Empire. In fact, it's not just for any geography, but all people from all nations. Now, just to, just to make this completely clear, in case you missed the point of this, this means that this kingdom is for you. Because it covers the whole earth. Everybody is included. Everybody is invited into that kingdom. So, so that means it's, pe- it's for people from every different background. If you're sat here today thinking, oh man, I'm nothing like that joker at the front, then that's fine. Because the kingdom's for you as well. If you're, if you're sat here thinking, ah, oh, I get that the kingdom of God, that's for, that's for good people, but I'm not a good person. It's for you. It's universal in its scope. If you're sat here thinking, oh, but it's only for people who were brought up that way. It's not. It's universal in scope. It's for everyone, whatever, however they were brought up. Whatever your nationality, whatever your background, whatever your financial situation, whatever your gender, whatever your history, whatever your past looks like, the kingdom of God is available for you because it is universal. It covers the whole earth. Nobody is excluded from being invited into that kingdom. It's not limited like all other kingdoms are. That's the first thing we're told about this kingdom. No other kingdom functions like that. No other kingdom is universal and covers the whole earth. Only God's kingdom does that. The the second, we're also told, verse 44, you'll see this, that this kingdom is indestructible and everlasting. You can see it in verse 44. In In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. It will endure forever. Now, just to be clear, that is very different to every other kingdom. No other kingdom endures forever. When a kingdom rises up and it looks so powerful, it's hard to imagine that it ever won't be. Think about Daniel, surrounded by the mighty Babylonian empire with its huge king and all its wealth and all its power. They've just come. They've conquered your nation. They've taken your people away. You're completely powerless. You look at the Babylonian empire and you think, this is going to be there forever. It wasn't. It lasted about 100 years, the Babylonian empire. 100 years, it was gone. What came after? Medes and the Persians did 200, a bit better. The Greek did 300. Romans, maybe did 400, 500, depending on when you think it fell. They come and they go. Same is true of the Mongolian Empire. The same is true of the British Empire. Empires come and empires go. And when you, you see them there and they look so powerful, you think they're going to be there forever, but they never are. Only God's kingdom is there forever. Only God's kingdom has lasted since the dawn of time right through to now. This kingdom that God's going to establish is not fragile like Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar has to constantly worry about who's the next power that's going to overthrow him. God's kingdom doesn't have to worry about that. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is destined to be largely forgotten by history. 
God's kingdom will never be forgotten. Now, that idea that God's kingdom being established and defeating all of the human kingdoms, that idea that Daniel unpacks here, that is one of the central ideas of the book of Daniel. It's in some ways, I would say, the one idea that holds the whole book together. That's what holds together all this narrative stuff, all these history stories that we're going to see in Daniel 1 to 6, and all the visions at the end. They're all united around this one theme, God's kingdom. And the superiority of God's kingdom over everything else. And so the question we have to answer is, what is this kingdom? What is this kingdom which is going to come crashing into earth during, presumably, the Roman Empire, which is going to start off small and unimpressive, but over time grow and grow until eventually it covers the whole earth? What is this kingdom that will outlast all human kingdoms and never be overthrown? Well, the Bible's going to show us. Because right in the middle of the Roman Empire... God himself is going to come to earth in the person of Jesus. And what is he going to announce? He's going to tell us the kingdom of God is here. That's, that's, that's the primary thing that Jesus keeps telling people. The kingdom of God is here. This kingdom that Daniel talks about, this little rock that comes out from the mountain and comes crashing into the Roman Empire and eventually is going to grow and grow to cover the whole earth. Jesus says, I have come to bring that kingdom. Daniel reveals that the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that is for everyone, that is everlasting, that is indestructible, and Jesus comes and he says, that kingdom is here. That's the kingdom I've come to usher in. But it's interesting because when, when you hear that, you imagine something so different to what Jesus then goes on to do. You imagine that there's going to be armies and there's going to be battles. But there aren't. It's just such a different kingdom. This is a kingdom that will not be established through killing, but through dying. Jesus doesn't come to kill his enemies, but to die for them and win them into his kingdom. This is a kingdom which will not be about kidnapping people and bringing them under his control, but it'll be about freeing people from the slavery that they're actually under. This is a kingdom that will not be governed by, governed by threats and rewards, but by the promise of unconditional love. It's a completely different kind of kingdom. Our leaders, our structures, our entire culture will go and it will be replaced by new leaders and new structures and a new culture. And who knows what the values and beliefs of that culture will be. If you'd asked people 100 years ago, what will people be believing then? They wouldn't have come up with where we are now. And we cannot predict what the culture that replaces ours will be. It will, our culture will be gone. It will be largely forgotten. There will be a new culture in its place. But Jesus' kingdom has lasted for 2,000 years. And it will continue to last for the rest of human history and beyond. The other week, where'd I put it? The other week, I had my mind blown. I had my mind blown by this cup. <laughs> Lois is laughing because she blew my mind with it. Right, she was around in my house. Uh, and I said, I, I was looking at this cup. And I said, can you, can, you, can you grab me the monkey cup? And she looked in and she was like, what do you mean the monkey cup? 
I was like, well, you know, the, the cup which has the head of a face of a monkey. Can you all see the face of a monkey on this cup? Yeah, great. She went, no, she went, no it's not a monkey cup. It's a, it's a rabbit cup. I was like, well, you're about it's a rabbit cup. It's not a rabbit cup. She was like, yeah, it is. Look, like eyes and a mouth and ears. And, and, and like, it's a rabbit cup. And now I just can't not see the rabbit. Uh, but I hate being wrong. So I'm still sticking to the monkey, right? Because that means I'm right. But it's one of those weird things of like, every time I look at it, I'm like, is it a monkey or is it a rabbit? And, and it just throws me over and over again. Now, I really wanted to tell you about this mug because um, it's an important part of, of my life and I just wanted to give you an insight into you know, what goes on. Kind of, this is how the magic happens. If you're wondering, how does he come up with his talks? It's a lot of looking at mugs. Um, but the, the reason I wanted to talk about it is because is in some ways, that... That's kind of how Daniel works. There's like two things going on, and you kind of got to choose which one you see. Because they're both there, and they're both told, but you don't always see them both. Because there's one story going on here that is the story we were talking about last week, and we'll talk about a lot. It's the story of a brutal king who takes and exploits and threatens people for his own end. It's a, story of, it's a story told many times in human history of human leaders using their power to oppress and to control, to grow their own power and their wealth. That's one story. That's the monkey. And there's another story, though. It's a story that Daniel sees. Daniel actually sees an entirely different story here. And you can actually see it already in chapter 1. I didn't have time to talk about it last week. You can see it already going on in chapter 1. In verse 2 of chapter 1, after we're told what Nebuchadnezzar did, Daniel tells us this, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. All right, so there's a story of a king doing terrible things, but there's also a story of God and what he's doing in it. We're going to see it again and again. In verse 9, when Nebuchadnezzar's servant, this is of chapter 1, when Nebuchadnezzar's servant is favorable towards Daniel, then Daniel sees that as God's hand at work. When Daniel is seen to be more uh, better kind of than all the other helpers in verse 17, Daniel's able to see that these are good gifts from God. In all of his accomplishments, Daniel is able to see that God is showering good gifts on him. As he encounters the threats of Nebuchadnezzar and the strength of his kingdom, Daniel is able to see a king who sits above Nebuchadnezzar and a kingdom will, which will outlast him. It's the same story, the same stuff's happening, but Daniel's seeing something very different in it to what you or I might see. He's seeing the hand of God at work. This is how life works. Life is a collection of events, and we ascribe some meaning to those events. And the question is, what are we going to see in this story? in all that's going on around us. Last week, we were looking at how does Daniel manage to stay strong, following and obeying God in a culture which is hostile to God, desperate for Daniel to give up on him. And we, we're gonna, we see again in this week, Daniel uses the same strategies he used last week. He gets his friends around and he prays to God. He doesn't go to Babylonians for help or, or wisdom or for education, but he goes to God. In the face of Nebuchadnezzar's threats and promises, he doesn't alter God's message, but he just resolves to stand firm and boldly proclaim it to him. The strategies Daniel uses are the same, but ultimately, it is what Daniel believes about God which enables him to do this. Daniel believes that God 
is better and stronger than Nebuchadnezzar. And so when faced with a choice between obeying Nebuchadnezzar or God, he always chooses God's. Daniel believes that God's kingdom will outlast Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, so he chooses to associate with that kingdom, to live by that kingdom's values and beliefs, rather than by Babylon's. Everything Daniel does grows out of two beliefs, which are what we've been looking at this afternoon, that God is a king who is better than Nebuchadnezzar, and that God's kingdom is a kingdom that is better than Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. They're the two beliefs that empowers Daniel to live this life for God in a culture that believes so many different things. You can never live for God in a culture so opposed to him without believing those two things. So I'm going to finish just by asking you that question. Is that what you believe? Because if you don't, you, you can never live for God in a hostile culture. Do you believe that God is better than all the other things that could rule your life? Do you believe that God is better than money or success or career or family or relationships or whatever? Do you believe that God is more committed to your good than any of those things? Do you believe that God is more powerful than those things? All those things that will seek to control you in your life. Do you believe that God is more powerful than money? Which, just like Nebuchadnezzar, promises you limitless joy if you live for it and misery if you won't. Do you believe God is more powerful than that person? That person in your life who has the power to make your life miserable or to bring you so much that you want? Do you believe that God's more powerful than that? Do you believe that God's kingdom is the only kingdom worth being a part of? That every other kingdom on earth will fall and fail, but that only by being in God's kingdom will we ever be truly secure in a kingdom which is not seeking to use us, but rather to bless us. Are these, what, these the things that you believe? Because they're the beliefs that enable you to keep living for God when you're surrounded by people, powerful people, powerful forces that have no interest in you doing that when you're surrounded by people who will promise you rewards, who will threaten you with punishment and make unreasonable demands on you, the only way you stand strong, the only way you resist that is by believing that God is a better king, that his kingdom is a better kingdom. They are the beliefs which fed Daniel's courage and his convictions, and they're the beliefs that we're calling you to have as a church. If you are someone here today who's not a, not a Christian, you don't know Jesus, you've never come to follow him. You've heard talk of Jesus, but you've never seen that the kingdom he brought in was the kingdom that he was inviting you into. I just want to tell you, this is the kingdom that you need. How many of us are insecure? Constantly feeling just threatened by all the things around us. How many of us feel lost? seeking for something to live for, some purpose, some meaning, but never quite finding it? How many of us feel exploited? Like people around us are just trying to use us. Like they promise us the world, but they never deliver. Like they're just looking for an opportunity to get us. How many of us feel vulnerable? If that's you, if that's how you feel, 
you need this kingdom and you need this king. Because this kingdom is the only kingdom which is truly secure. You need to know that there is a kingdom where you can truly belong, where you don't feel lost and aimless. There is a kingdom where you will not be exploited and taken advantage of. There is a kingdom where you can feel secure and safe. There is a kingdom where you can find a meaningful vision for your life. There is a kingdom that won't be here today and gone tomorrow, but will last for the rest of your life and into your eternity. If you are someone who doesn't know Jesus, who hasn't come into that kingdom yet, you need this kingdom. Without it, we are fragile, vulnerable, lost. If you're someone here today, you'd go, look, look, I I hear you, Ben, and I agree with you, but I know Jesus. I'm, I'm a Christian. I already know all this stuff. I just want to, just a very simple call to you, and that's just to keep your eyes fixed on this kingdom. Because the problem with being exiles, which is what we're going to be told we are, is that it becomes hard to remember our home. We feel displaced and insecure and vulnerable and all those things that I said we wouldn't feel like in this kingdom. We feel lost but we need to keep our eyes fixed on God's kingdom and remember that God's kingdom continues to grow. And it grows, according to this vision, alongside all these other kingdoms. And that it's in living as part of that kingdom, as following that king, accepting that kingdom's beliefs, pursuing the things that that kingdom values. That's where we can find the security, the belonging, that can't be found in any other kingdom or culture. It saddens me so much when we see Christians being pulled away by a culture, by a different kingdom that is so vastly inferior to the kingdom that God has made and we've called you into. Let me pray as we finish.